Hello world, welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. I have a returning guest today, it's Matthias Martins, aka Matthias in Space. Uh, check out the first episode we did together, it was fantastic according to my wife. And now he's back because tomorrow he has a book out, How to Do Things with Stories. So Matthias, uh, what is an idea that's been helping you live well, doing things with stories? Right. Um, yeah, so my book is called How to Do Things with Stories, A Guide to Transformative Storycraft. And the book is, it, it touches on a lot of things that are important to me uh, in my life. And it also the story of how it came to be is tied up with a lot of me, um, like my experience of, of learning how to live well. I think that's fair to say, because... <laughs> It was uh, a couple of ideas related to storytelling and art because like a little bit of my background is um, I went to school for computer science, but partly the idea behind that was always I'm going to secure my financial stability and then I'm going to do what I really care about, which is writing novels. Um, so that was always in the back of my mind during my university career. And an idea that formed during university was about it was like inspired by um uh, the works of certain people i was reading in my syllabus like uh, wolfgang ezer was talking about the the reading process the idea that um like he was one of the first people to do analysis on what happens when you pick up a book <laughs> and how is it different mm. from um for example reading a newspaper article or or, or reading something you know, reading something that's just very blatantly trying to convey information to you. Um, how is it different to read an artistic piece of work? Um, and as I recall, it was Ezer who also really honed in on the idea that the difference between a story and information that's packaged just to be, just for its own, <laughs> just for um, a utilitarian purpose, is that artistic storytelling is ambiguous. There's gaps between the words. Um, you're told about such and such about what a person is feeling or what a person does, and you're not told other things. And through that, it creates gaps as the story proceeds. And then the audience um, listens to this and they take on the task of filling in those gaps with content from their own selves. Like there's a reason they care about the story. And part of that is that they're filling in, um, they're connecting it, they're making connections. So <laughs> that idea came to me in an exam. Um, or no, that's not accurate because it was at first from the book. What came to me in the exam was the kernel of how to do things with stories, which is extending that idea with uh, the concept of the subconscious um, and saying that the gaps that a writer leaves in the story correspond to or nod to the subconscious mind of themselves. And then the reader with how they respond to those gaps uh, invites in their own subconscious mind so that reading is then a communication between the subconscious of the writer and the subconscious of the reader. Um, mm. Which is, that was the kernel of the idea that I didn't turn into how to do things with stories until um, maybe nine or 10 years later. And in between, 
I wrote, uh, I, I, I published my first novel. It's called The Goer. And that experience was, was tricky for me because I think through that I had to learn a lot of things about myself because <laughs> um, I don't know if you know this at all, but self-publication is quite a different game than publishing through um, an agency because right. you have to have confidence in yourself to a degree that goes far beyond what's necessary to um, land a job or make a friend or um, like find a girlfriend, you know, <laughs> like all of those yeah. things you need to be like, okay, I kind of know who I am. You know, I, I know what my strengths are. Like that's, that's helpful in all of those domains. But when it comes to something like publishing your own book, you have to be more like, I'm on a mission. You need to know <laughs> about what's in my book. But then what was in my book was like a story. It was like a, a fable. It was fantasy. It was a uh, very intimate personal um, elements I was drawing from to tell this story. Um, it was very heartfelt, but I kind of felt like, you know, Hey, do you want to read, do you want to read my journal? Do you want to read a couple of pages from my journal? Do you want to, do you want to mm -hmm. pay for the privilege of doing that? <laughs> um, and it just felt absurd, but it got me thinking about storytelling much more intensely than I had before. And like, I had told this story as a way of processing my own, my own grief and my own trauma and my own um, hopes and desires for the world and, and for myself. And then I felt this gap on the other side, like the reader, what is the reader going to get out of this? And that is when I started thinking mm. about how to do things with stories and the idea of like, okay, what if I had tried to tell a story and I knew from the beginning what I wanted to do with it? How would I have gone about the process differently? Right. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm, I haven't self-published a, a novel, but I feel like a podcast that's inching on 100 episodes and not promoted anywhere takes that kind of, <laughs> I mm, don't know, grind. grit and hopefulness, <laughs> weird mix and confidence. Um, yeah, so I, I'd love for you to... Um, share with listeners a little bit of how all of us could, could apply this concept, but I want maybe to go back to the theoretical framework of, uh, Ezer, you say, mm -hmm. uh, what would be, what would be an example of a gap that's, that's left if, if we're, um, if we have a scene in front of us in a book, what is a gap? Is it is it every detail that could be written in, but but isn't? Is it anything like that, or is that a a different uh, definition? Yeah, that's that's a good thing to hone in on. Yeah, because the thing is, the leaving of gaps is inevitable, and I I think there's a couple of ways of answering that question because it it, it varies. Um, there's lots of different things that Ezer may have meant by this, and also. You know, I would use this in lots of different ways. Like one chapter of the book is just talking about the different types of ambiguity that a story can have. Um, and one of them is indeed the leaving out of details. But this is why um, the participation of the reader is important from a very early stage. Um, and also why the writer doesn't always know what gaps they are leaving, because it is a function of who's reading as well, because the reader will have different expectations. Um, there was a 
the example that comes to mind for a, like a very basic idea of, of, of what I'm talking about with gaps is, um, um, it was a description of Hemingway's style of writing and Hemingway was quite famous for right. saying the like tip of the iceberg. Yes. Tip of the iceberg. Um, yeah. strike out all of the adverbs and distrust the mm. adjectives. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the result is that his stories have like his prose style as a somewhat terse, choppy quality to it, but that's what he's going for. Um, yeah. And I, I'm not sure if I can tell you where exactly this is from. It's, it's about fishing, but it's not the old man in the sea. Um, but it was an example used to illustrate the concept of show don't tell. Um, mm, maybe Nick Adams stories or something like well, that. Well, it was Hemingway, but I, this is not yeah. an example that no, I No, no, this is, yeah, that's, that's a book. Oh, Adams stories is Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, Nick Adams. Yeah. Nick Adams. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so it, it may well be that, but as you can see, I don't have direct experience with it. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember uh, a good, yeah, with Hemingway, there are plenty of uh, examples. One is um, there's a short story, well, they're all short, I guess, pretty much, uh, mm. about a man and a woman kind of having this discussion about something that's going to happen in, uh, I think it's Barcelona, and they're taking the train there. They never te it never tells you what that thing is, but there are enough clues around that you can speculate that it's an abortion, but not really right. safe for sure or something like that. So yeah, Hemingway was hey, hey, I knew that if I just kept muttering long enough, you'd come up with the perfect example. Um, <laughs> and that is, that is exactly, <laughs> that is exactly what I'm talking about. That type of ambiguity. Um, yeah. and yeah, that, that, that heightens it as a story, right. Rather than, you know, what you, you know, if it's a movie theater, you walk out confused, like, well, what were they even talking about? But no, that's, that's the whole thing that makes it, stick with you yeah yeah absolutely um great so if if that if this is this kind of thing i'm interested in hearing about um how can we use this in in our lives and be mindful of that and apply this idea that the gaps matter uh first of all do you think it could be imported into speech as well yeah, well, um, I think probably the best way to approach that question, which I've, I've definitely I've thought about quite a bit, um, is from the perspective of the role that stories play in culture, um, which, in my opinion, goes beyond, goes far beyond the way that it is seen in the kind of um, the commodity, the commodified version of stories. Uh, the storytelling industry, like entertainment, right? Um, that is stories in one of their guises that, you know, stories for entertainment that is then packaged and uh, oriented around like mass profit and mass appeal. Um, in mm. my opinion, that's a fairly minor part of the role of stories uh, in culture more broadly. Um so some of the things that some of the functions that a story serves in society is that a story encodes information about how that society views the world. So um, there's an example, which I often think of because it's very compelling. It's also somewhat obscure 
um, it was an ethnography of folklore from uh, the Maori uh, of New Zealand. It was about the creation of Aotearoa, which is uh, their name for the, mm. the islands, um, which was that um, it was a, it was a boat that a god was riding and the boat became waterlogged and the, the prow raised up and part of the back was submerged, but a small part of the stern remained above water and the description is quite is quite specific, and if you compare it to a map of the greater the greater New Zealand, like the the Big Island and the Little mm. Island, um, it it lines up very well. And then you see, like, oh, this is this is maybe what they were driving at, right? It's a form of uh, uh, mm. mnemonic um, that through a story you get this sequence of events, right. code something important about the world. And I think it's probably undervalued how often um, folklore from other cultures is actually encoding information that's not clear when we look at it through Western eyes. <laughs> um, but I suspect that's happening quite often when things don't make sense to us. Um, but so that's one thing that stories can do. Um, another thing they can do, which is kind of by the same token, is they they help um, form bonds between people like social cohesion that a symbol in a story has a certain meaning that goes beyond the story and people who participate in the story take up that symbol and it has further meaning to them it becomes part of life um, mm -hmm. whether it's fictional or not because of course um, um, there's lots of uh, like what we now consider myths and folklore were not considered a separate category from um, like history, like the history, the, the yeah. ethics and histories of a, of a people. It was all one thing. Um, but nowadays we put it in its own category, but either way it has, it has meaning, right? Like you can see the, um, the power of stories to, to uh, form bonds between people in, in the formation of fandoms today, right? Like the Harry Potter fandom mm. or the Star Wars fandom. Um, it, there can be like a drama playing out that's quite intense, um, even in, in, in that context. Um, but I think that still doesn't quite get at your original question, which is a very important question, which is how does a story help an individual? Mm -hmm. Um and I think, I think there's kind of two sides to that question, because part of it is that, you know, this is a classic commonplace that we are always telling stories about ourselves to ourselves. And it's a big part of um, a lot of therapeutic approaches is to analyze these stories that are surfacing. Um, like, I, I guess I would say in that context, a story is one type of self-belief. Like what you often find is that people have things like so-called limiting beliefs, right? Like I'm not the type of person mm. who does this. Um, or like I'm doomed to suffer would be another example, right? Which is like quite dramatic, but a lot of people do believe that about themselves, right? And mm -hmm. then that is sort of the kernel of it because that's their, that's their quasi-fictional role in the stories that right. they make of themselves, which means that that then comes across 
whenever they tell stories about themselves, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then I suffered because I am doomed to suffer. And then this happened and then this happened, right? So it's, it's, it's shaping the, um, shaping the stories that emerge as, as, as we, um, as we go through the experiences of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been lucky enough to have, um, two very thoughtful and intelligent people, uh, discussing what could be done with stories. So one episode was with Rick Benger very early on in the podcast and the other one with Derek Sivers explored, um, authority and authorship and the interesting, uh, linguistic, uh, connection there and also conceptual. Um, yeah. And I, I'd love to hear more about the, um, the gaps. What, what about the, the gaps? Should we be looking at the gaps in our own story? And then would we be surprised to look at what and at, at the ways in which these gaps can be filled in? Like I'm just throwing out ideas on the fly here, but it seems interesting to actually examine your own stories, see what you've been leaving out, probably because you were rushing to um, come face to face with uh, or face the the concepts that are really um, salient in your thinking, and then what what other things were were missing there that could maybe be looked at differently. Um, I don't know that, does it bring any thought to your mind? Uh, yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. Like I think, um, cause to go back to story storytelling or like surfacing stories from a therapeutic standpoint, um, one thing you can always do is, is like be critical and look for the gaps in your own story because the gaps show, uh, what you weren't consciously focusing on would be one way of putting it. I think like. Uh, going back to like the person who believes they're doomed to suffer, like when one way that manifests in the way that they tell stories about themselves is um, when they describe someone being kind to them. And then a few events later, they're being, they're being cruel and distrustful and there's a gap as to what happened there. And the gap mm. is this, this thing that's just living in the background. Like, well, of course everybody turns on me in the end. So, so did this person. Um, so, that can be a process, right? Where you just look at it and you look at the, the flaws. But I think the, the way that I would pivot that or the thing that's particularly interesting to me is that stories don't just exist to be analyzed and deconstructed. They also exist mm -hmm. to, well, to be lived and, and kind of to be a, a companion in the flow of life that like, as, as we're living, as new things are happening, we're fitting this into existing frames and existing stories as well. And I think the difference between a story and, um, just a belief more generally is that a story has a, a push and pull to it, right? It has tension. Um, mm. it has desire and uncertainty as to whether the desire will be achieved. And that is very, that is front and center in the stories we tell ourselves as well. But I think the stories we tell ourselves tend to form around the kernel of the things that everybody shares, like the things that, uh, the things that we want most and the, uh, the things we're afraid of and the, um, 
existential condition of not knowing what will happen. The stories exist in that space to, um, I guess, to prepare us for things that will happen in the future, to give us a way of making sense of things um, as they're in motion and try to anticipate what will happen next. And yeah, so in that sense that there's a therapy, like the therapeutic view might be about like deconstructing stories, but I think there is also a space for constructing stories. Um, and at least having the sense of like, I like de-identifying with the story, right? Like you definitely want to incorporate that, that Buddhist insight of, I am not my thoughts, but at the same time, the experience of having different thoughts can lead to different, can lead a person to different places. And that can be very valuable. And in that sense, so this is where it finally connects, right? Between how to, how to, um, how to be a storyteller to yourself and what I write about primarily mm -hmm. in the book, which is how to be a storyteller for other people is that the most effective stories use the gaps in order to, in order to pull you in a certain direction. So in that sense, like if you're engineering a story for yourself or inventing a story for yourself and your goal is to, um, I guess I use one, maybe for, this is probably pretty faithful to my own inner experience is that I want to tell myself stories where I am the, 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 uh, the socialite, like the, the person who makes things happen by connecting people. Um, mm. that's pretty high in my list of like yearnings. So this, but, but the, the, the key point is that the story that pulls a person in that direction isn't the story of fake it till you make it where it's like, Oh, of course I made this happen. Cause I'm already this way. Um, mm -hmm. because that comes from insecurity. Cause at that point, the gaps in the story lead you backward. Because what's happening mm. on the surface is just saying, Matthias is so great. Of course, he's successful. Um, but then the gaps in the story then are where your fears live. So a story needs to have this dynamism to it. It needs to be, it needs to be, you know, Matthias may or may not be great. <laughs> mm -hmm. But Matthias knows what he's after. And, and then the uncertainty in the outcome is what, produces motivation. And then it, it, it gets me in this example, or like somebody else thinking like, okay, what am I going to do now that I can see where I want to go? What am I going to do to make sure that I get there? Interesting. Yeah. It speaks to me on, on so many levels. Like personally, I just today and in recent days, I was in this really strange space still am, I guess, um, of, Having read so much about uh, the verbal kind of uh, skills of the left hemisphere and knowing how prone we are to get lost in it and, you know, really live in a world of representations in, instead of a world of, of presence where we are present. Um, it's, it led me to, to a place which is on the surface you'd think that would be perfect, a place that's more kind of living the moment uh, but I, I feel like my soul actually needs some time to adjust and, and feel at ease with that because that also means not 
really immediately harnessing your powers in relation to something in the future, right? It means giving up the future, like giving up the story in a sense. And that turns out for me, that's a really weird space to be in. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting. Like probably subconsciously this had to do with the fact that we were going to talk later in the day. But now that I think about, I had this image today of, just seeing a very quiet, clean, kind of crisp scene of a man, probably me, just looking at the book and you don't see what's in the book. And um, going outside of the story, usually you would be like, oh, what is he reading, right? What is he reading and, and going and trying to think about the thing that he's reading on? Well, today I was kind of looking at this like, what is he looking for? That he kind of sends his soul into this other place to like retrieve something. If we are reading something, does that mean necessarily? And today the notion that I had was that, that we do, do we necessarily feel that we lack something? And we go to the story to fill it in, to make sense so that we would know what part to play. What happens if we're not lacking anything and we're not looking for anything? It seems like no stories would arise. And I couldn't tell you at this point if this is now a desirable place to be in for me or not. But this is, this is very fascinating. Uh, so this is, uh, a really up-to-date um, <laughs> overview of my uh, emotional and mental um, way of being. And yeah, it definitely has a lot to do with stories because part of my thought is always, okay, I have kind of downtime. I should probably turn to some story or information or something, mm -hmm. right? So uh -huh. apparently my default is to think that um, I lack something and I need to look for it in a story. Uh, so this is a very rambling kind of way of looking <laughs> and I don't have a question at the end, but what you're saying about uh, stories and how they shape our lives and how um, just the fact that we need them says a lot about us and about the gaps that's kind of, uh, what came to mind. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm, that's really interesting what you shared there. Um, I think I'd have to think a bit more about the concept of if we were all contented, would we still tell stories to each other? Um, that, that gets my imagination going because I, I imagine it as sort of being all of us being contented is sort of the scenario in which the universe is born because, um, the gods, <laughs> the gods needed something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's kind of a, yeah, but, um, that's a fair assumption. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess in a sense, boredom is always the, um, the thing that haunts, maybe not always, but frequently it's the thing that haunts contentedness. Um, and it seems it would be remiss from here not to talk also about dreams, right? Cause dreams, mm -hmm. Sometimes they're just little fragments, but sometimes they're full narratives. And um, 
I think it's a pretty handy way to way to approach it to think about something like like what you were saying like what what is he reading like what's in the book um conveying some uncertainty about like what what value am i am i really after or or perhaps a desire to like reorient oneself like if if you're you're in a space where the future feels like a blank canvas and then that dream kind of symbolizes that right because you know it has something to do with the written word and with the, with discourse and with thought but what that is is um still waiting to be created um i i really relate yeah. to that by the way i mean it's it's different from from what you're describing of wanting to uh like i have some free time i can get into a book for me it's more like i have some free time i can write something and i find that, that mm. is often uh also a little bit dangerous because I tend not to schedule in time to take in information, even though that's obviously really important. Um, oh, don't worry. That happened this morning. Yeah, I sat down to, to write for my Substack and um, didn't work. That was frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, but not in equal parts. I tend to read more than, than I do write um, to keep the writing fun, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and another thing that uh, came up from what you were mentioning earlier is something that I see in my daughter, which is really interesting to me because uh, I've been thinking about the kind of stories you can almost um, imbue people with because she's uh, young, she's four and something, and... I, I recognize that in, in, at certain points, it's very tempting to tell her, for example, something, uh, something that you want her to have, some sort of trait or something like that. It's very tempting to tell her like, oh, you were always like that. Ever since mm -hmm. you were a baby, you know, you were like not giving up on what you wanted. <laughs> true, not true. Uh, this, <laughs> this is actually an effective way of doing it to someone. And I, I, mm. I was always reluctant to make her inherit these stories because I know that stories can be, um, you know, flipped on their head and, and mm. stuff. Like, what does it mean? And I'm not sure I wanted to give her that, but <laughs> I think at certain points I definitely thought about it and maybe did it in a, in a small way, but it's interesting that just very naturally it came to my mind that this is how I should instill a certain value in her is tellers like, Oh, you were always like that ever since you mm -hmm. were a baby, because for us, how many, like you say, how many, um, of our traits are actually based on some sort of, um, narrative. And it's very interesting. I had the chance, I have uh, sisters that are much older than me. So I asked them about a few of my own conceptions of myself. It was like, I was really, really, really stubborn, right? And they're like, well, <laughs> normal child, stubborn. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and then it turns out it's like, hey, you're robbing me of my, of my <laughs> own, my, my self-conception. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's fascinating that we I, can I think, do um, that. Uh, Zizek wrote about that, um, somewhere about um, the concept of always already, 
and the, the role that it plays in society. Um, he was talking about like when people, uh, when people fall in love, um, they'll tend to express it as I always already loved you. And also when people fall mm. out of love, they were, they were like, they're, they're sort of rewriting the past from one point of view. Um, but from mm. another point of view, they're, they're correcting their understanding of the past. Um, and that is something that always happens with stories, right? Because stories, uh, at least like biographical stories require reaching into the past and connecting it to the present. And that hides the incredible, um, diversity of ways in which we can do that because biography is so much more complex than, um, you know, uh, bookkeeping, right? Like, it's not just a bunch of numbers about like, yeah. here's how many kilometers I ran this year. Here's my, how many words I wrote. Like, that's not how we remember things. Um, yeah. and I think there's a point here too, about like the uncertainty about like, is it okay to say this? And I, I would say it is generally, I mean, it, it depends on whether it feels true to you. Um, and I think there's always a little bit of space within that, right? Because it's not, it's not really um, a matter for objectivity to settle, whether somebody has the attribute of never giving up on what they want, right? It's more of a, it's more part of that interpretive lens. And there are ways yes. of interpreting the uncertainty in the world that open up possibilities for us. And I think the example you gave about your daughter is, is one of them. Like, if she sees herself as the sort of person who never gives up on what she wants, it's more likely that she will, you know, be able to d discipline herself and, um, and, uh, trust herself to be able to, to get somewhere. So to me, that sounds good. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, but then, you know, she could become, she could become, um, yeah, somebody who's too set in the ways about doing this, you know, past no, the point where that. it's maybe it lost it. Yeah, it's 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 always a double-edged sword. But mm -hmm. uh, I think the the main takeaway is that it came to me in that form. It's like you want to really educate your child to have some sort of attitude or something like that. Mm -hmm. You can tell them that they've always been like that, whether that's true or not. Um, right. I, I think with actually, her too, I see that. that uh, mm -hmm. There's a yeah, way to connect it even more closely to the ambiguity of storytelling. That example is that if you tell someone they have always been this way, it also opens the door to the question, what is it like to be this way? What is it like to be someone mm. who uh, never gives up on what they want? Is that always a good thing? <laughs> um, right, right. So what they take away from that might not be what you intended them to take away. Exactly. Well, from the from the little bit you know me and listeners to, I like always um, bringing more context into into the thinking, so that you would be able not to get yourself in trouble, like entering some sort of cul-de-sac with your with your uh, thoughts. So my daughter also. Uh, she's an only, and so she's very, very, very special in her own mind. She's like, I'm so special. I'm more special than other kids. And I'm like, whoa, okay, let's talk about what being special is. And, you know, I go with her through some um, forms of specialness that are mm -hmm. not necessarily good. 
It's mm-hmm. just like it can be especially annoying or especially <laughs> impolite or especially unhealthy, right? But um, so so that's that's one thing that I find um, fun, honestly. Uh, but also important is to really there is a gap there, and consider not not fill in the gap with a, with a, with an exclamation mark, but with a question mark, right? Just like here's what you're saying, and this of course relates very much to to dialectic and being able to ask the kind of questions that are going to um, really kind of um, test test the hypotheses that you that you're holding. Mm, certainly. Yeah. And I do think that more stories is better than fewer stories. And I think that applies somewhat to the lesson of the dialectic as well, that things are meant to, um, um, the point is meant to produce its counterpoint. Actually, I think that might be a different, mm. I might be confusing the uh, Socratic dialectic with the Hegelian dialectic. <laughs> but I think in both cases, there's, a, there's ideas and then you're, you're winnowing them down through the process, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the Hegelian one did build on the Socratic one, and the point mm-hmm. is, um, yeah, to more fully explore something from different perspectives around it. So, um, yeah, basically asking a question is offering a new perspective on something, and if this thing still looks as if it's part of this um, unchanging object at the center, then that's corroborating your hypothesis. But if it makes it move suddenly or not really be able to sit well with whatever you consider the thing to be in the first place, then you might have to adjust your um, conception of it for sure. Have you, have you um, at any point with yourself, have you done any kind of work uh, explicitly to look at your own stories from that uh, paradigm and challenge them or create new ones or anything like that? Oh, um, well, last time I was on the show, uh, we talked about, um, the, the work I did, um, with like, um, body awareness and voice work that I did Mm -hmm. with, uh, with, with my partner, Danielle Benson. Um, uh, I did um, attend one of her workshops, which was related to this topic of like um, one of the concepts that she used there is your your magic triangle, <laughs> and the concept was um, identifying three archetypes that are balanced within you to make your personality which is kind of an imaginative exercise. And when I say archetypes, I'm not using that term very strictly. Um, like w- w- one of the ones um, that she suggested for me was, was puppy, <laughs> like, a, like a puppy gets enthusiastic and excited and like wants to um, like meet someone new and wants to play. Right. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. kind of, that's an archetype in a sense. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm always doing, some type of work in this area. Like, I think a lot of my stories are naturally because I think about stories so much, the stories about me tend to be a bit more, uh, one, one level further out reflective. Um, Mm. and often the story is more like I'm trying to find myself in the gaps between 
these ideas of what I can be. Um, I think um, an example of that is uh, the uh, the three archetypes of uh, leader, follower, and wanderer. The idea being that that you know some people tend to lead others, some people tend to follow the leader, which means like um, using the leader's worldview as a framework and then executing um, like to make to perfect what is good in that framework. And then other people are are wanderers, meaning they don't expect anyone to follow them. And they are just exploring and trying to find what works for them. And then I find myself asking, like, which of these suits me? Um, and that has not been easy to answer. And I think in some sense, the um, the tension between all three is part of how um, what I live in. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, well, it makes me think immediately. It made me think of the... Um, instances where a wanderer becomes a leader, you know, without even looking or something like that. So in the south of Israel by the Dead Sea, um, you have east-facing slopes in the Great Rift Valley. And so it's, uh, there's a rain shadow uh, effect there. So it's a, it's a very dry desert, but there's a lot of water flowing through it because the water, uh, uh, gets poured at the top with rain mm. that does fall there. And so from antiquity, it, um, it attracted the loners, the wanderers who wish to be alone in the desert and they can do it there. They can, uh, sit by the spring and just eat dates and bread and, and uh, survive like that. Uh, but there's a whole tradition, a later tradition from Byzantine times of, uh, Monasteries just popping up in the footsteps of these people. So the beginning is you have this genuine loner who wishes, who has these ideas about communing with God by really leaving everything behind. And then, you know, through some chance, some someone hears about him, is actually moved and inspired and moves next to him. And before you know it, there's a, a community. And before you know it, there's one of these leaders who, like, takes charge after the original guy presumably dies because these people would not, they were, they were loners, okay? They did not want to lead. And then after that, in the monastery, you have more uh, traditional, like, leaders, like fathers of the monastery and then, and then disciples or, or monks or something like that. So it is interesting to see how um, you could be, you could go all in on like one of these archetypes and end up one of the different ones, right? I think you see it with politicians too. Politicians, we call them leadership. How many times they're actually pandering. They're like telling, they're kind of, checking the water right with with their voters it's like what would you like me to say and it's like maybe asking 10 people who really know their audience and their and their voter um population and then he goes and then he comes on tv as if it was his own idea but he already knows like his audience so the leaders are being led right it's, <laughs> and it's really interesting how these things um actually happen mm. 
yeah, the, 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 I guess the transmutation, um, is, is an interesting theme with archetypes is that things mm. aren't as, um, um, especially archetypes aren't as solid as they appear and, and things have a tendency to, uh, uh, contain their opposites. <laughs> that kind of, that kind of concept is, um, and, and yeah, that's very important in storytelling is about, um, inexplicable transformations <laughs> or, mm. um, maybe not inexplicable, but surprising or, um, um, like difficult to, difficult to follow until it's done, um, is, is definitely part of what makes stories, um, capture the, capture the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's activity. talk about transformation. Like, do you have anything to add, um, on that, on an effective way to do that through, uh, storytelling transformation, you know, hopefully, hopefully in a good way. Um, is there something in common in, in stories that, that talk about, uh, let's say, um, um, in terms of personality, like transformations that happen to people and is there a way to facilitate it for us? If we instill our stories with those devices. Mm. Yeah, I think in a sense, transformation is the most ambitious goal that a storyteller can have. Um, well, not just transformation within a story, which almost always happens, but transformation of the person experiencing the story mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which is, is much rarer. Um, I, I write about this quite a lot in the book from different perspectives that um, when you're telling a story, it's going to engage the audience's mind in different ways. And because like the, the medium of a story is something that's, that's coming in through the senses. I mean, I'm, I'm writing about books, so it's mainly words, <laughs> but words aren't really like our, our language processing centers in the brain are somewhat remote from the brain stem, which is the part that is, um, in a sense, at least as I see it, um, coordinating, um, compressing all of the information that the brain is, um, is processing down into a, um, a general, like, am I safe? Am I, uh, am I in danger? Kind of a very basic signals for like what the, what the tempo is, what should be going on in the brain. So there's no way just with words to, um, make a person feel terror directly, which is good because if there were, it would be a very cheap thing to do and people would be very, um, cautious about picking up a book, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it's just, um, with a story, there's a, there's a back and forth between the storyteller and the, the person experiencing the story, even when they're the same person, um, that depends on trust. And the trust is where the deeper effect comes in that the words that are spoken are experienced as fully as possible. Like the, the person experiencing it thinks about what they're, what they're, um, like what's coming in reflects on it, makes analogies and comparisons. Um, it surfaces memories and emotions. And then at some point it does actually get to like the very deep core of their mind. Um, but that only happens when this trust is maintained and when the, the topic is, um, 
I guess I would say sufficiently, sufficiently broad, but that might be imprecise. I think it's more that it, the, the topic has to, the topic has to cut through the noise to what really matters to that person. And then mm. at some point within that, that's where the transformation happens. But because of, because the transformation happens so much based on what the experiencer of the story brings to the story, it is, it is very much their transformation. It's no longer a transformation authored by the storyteller. Um, so the storyteller is more like a catalyst for what already exists within the person's mind. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think <laughs> there's, I was thinking of an example, like where did this happen to me? And right. I, I was going to ask, so it's good. Mm -hmm. Now you're interviewing yourself. That's good. <laughs> um, yeah. The, um, well, that's grand. Um, where it happened to me that I most, I remember most compellingly was when Russian doll came out the, the Netflix series. Um, mm. and to go into Russian, like what Russian doll is about a little bit, um, it's, it's about someone who is very jaded in how they live their life. And they're like kind of, uh, funny. And they have this like ad attitude of, um, what, whatever, ha whatever will be, will be. Um, and it's kind of working for them superficially, but deep down they're not happy. Um, and then they, and then, and then, uh, and then she dies <laughs> and, but, but she dies. And then she wakes up at the party that she was at that evening. And it's a sort of groundhog day plot superficially is what it appears to be. Um, mm -hmm. But what happens as she's like, as she's going through these experiences and then dying and then going back to the party is she's digging up more and more of her past and seeing that the, that the facade on top was, uh, um, was like protecting her, but not really holding her together that she wasn't, uh, um, that she had, there was, there was so much going on that she hadn't processed and that she was, um, um, not, she didn't believe it was possible to process it and to be well. Um, and interesting. I have a, I have a, a recommendation to follow up on now. Um, oh, yeah, okay. for me, it has to be, um, it has to be uh, Hermann Hesse, probably. And I think it is for many people going through their teenage years, uh, through adolescence. But I love what you say about, uh, trust. I think for him, you know, thinking of the author, and I don't really know anything about Hermann Hesse too much, but he has a lot of power, right? And with great power comes great responsibility. And it's quite amazing that he's helped so many people at this point to, um, go into a better place in their life, uh, find kind of whether it's a calling or, or way of being like I've heard from so many people that they enjoy these books, which I think the theme, so to name a couple that I really liked are, uh, Siddhartha, which is a classic. And then, uh, Narcissus and Goldmund, uh, which is also pretty good. And I think the theme that runs through them, and why it affected me is because I had an attitude at that time, probably already reading Buddhism outside Siddhartha, which just doesn't really get into the religion hardcore. 
Um, but thinking that there is this enlightenment, right, and rigidity and, like, discipline to get somewhere, and then his uh, protagonists are just kind of bumbling through life and never really, like, it gives you the message that seekers are going to seek, even when they get to some sort of perceived um, enlightenment or understanding or something, they're bound to almost get bored with it and move on and be novices again at something else. And, you know, you find a story that's like that just resonates deep within your soul and it's amazing. And there is, there is trust there because you take it very seriously as a, as a young person who's uh, looking to to really be changed. You open yourself up to change and then the change actually ends up to be one that brings you to a better place. That's, that's pretty amazing. Like I'm very thankful for Herman Hesse that, Mm -hmm. you know, he could have undermined it by doing all sorts of plot twists or whatnot or, and, and he didn't like that's, that's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. I I think part of, um, well, from what I understand of Hesse, I, uh, I read, uh, Steppenwolf, which I believe is her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and also like with the experience that I had with Russian doll as the, um, the, uh, ability of the storyteller to not tell you how they want you to feel is kind of the, the, the first thing, right? I think it's this combination of, I, I, I'm putting attention on you, but not because I want something. And in, it's in a sense kind mm-hmm. of surprising and miraculous <laughs> that a storyteller is able mm. to to give that perception in the first place that they are paying attention to you through you reading or experiencing their story. But it's 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 possible, and I think the reason it's possible is that there's so much that we as human beings experience that I guess you'd say it rhymes <laughs> with what other people are experiencing that it has the similar yeah. structure, and that comes. As some, a lesson I keep having to relearn, I find, when I am thinking about how to address an audience uh, of any kind, is that part of me wants to, um, like, lay out sort of a deal that I'm proposing to them, but, like, with this frame that I am one entity and you are another entity, and there is this information that I would like to get across, um, and I'm hoping to persuade you to be you know, um, generous enough with your time that you will, uh, consent to considering what I have to tell you, you know, Mm. um, this kind of defensive atomized framing, but part of what storytelling allows me to connect to is this other thing. That's more like, it's just pure expression, just, just something that, that bursts out of me. And it's part of my experience, uh, and it's just something that, that I feel in my guts, you know, something that's true of me. If I can connect to that, then I can express something and I can skip all of that self-consciousness and all of those intermediate steps. And that's part of my trust to the audience, right? Is that I'm trusting them to, to just be there or not be there. And it doesn't matter at that point because the expression is is so true that it feels like an end in itself. Um, and I think that's, that's part of what, what Hesse accomplished and why he's so, he's so cherished and remembered is that he wasn't trying to, um, 
he wasn't trying directly to mold people. Like certainly there was something he right. wanted to say, but he got it across by talking about himself. Right. It's so, it's so, um, yeah, that's your spot on. I mean, I think it's the, the thin line between being didactic and, and kind of dialectic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not didactic. He's, he's telling you a story about characters, um, that, you know, you're not going to be able to equate with him or anything like that. And he's not telling you what right or wrong. This is just how the characters felt. And this is what they've been going through, you know? Um, and it's only when you piece together a few of his novels where you can kind of glean something about probably his own personality, probably, you know, but that doesn't even matter that much. Um, yeah, that's definitely something that's very hard to achieve is that perfect balance between being didactic and leaving a lot, um, to the readers to find out. Um, mm. yeah, the, the short story, the one short story that I published on my Gumroad account is an homage to Edgar Allan Poe and a friend read it and he asked me a bunch of stuff on like details. He couldn't piece together. And I told him, well, you just have to read it a second time because I left a lot of the details that are kind of like, it's not obvious upon mm. first reading why they're there. But if you read them again, they complete the story. And this wasn't to defend my style of writing, which is not, I'm not a writer by any stretch of the imagination, but it's hard, you know, because I recognized in real time, I could be didactic about it, but that takes, that just takes out so much of the fun. Mm. Yeah. I have something I'd like to, to volunteer there. I think uh, about that interesting question about um, the balance between being didactic and dialectic is um, I think often the best place to put that desire to be didactic is in the structure of the story. So like the higher level, uh, plotting or like thinking about like the story is divided into so and so many segments and what's going to be important in each segment like what's going to be the the dominant focus the thing that's always hovering in the background through everything that's happening mm. um that's where it's helpful to be didactic because then it's more that's sort of where it connects back to if there's something definite that you're trying to get across or a particular um yeah, a particular something, <laughs> whether it's a, like a message right. or something you want people to think, um, that's a good place to put it, like in the different sections of the story. But then for that to still work as a story, that's when you become dialectic. And that happens in the substructure, like in the, in the texture of the prose. Um, at least this is what I find is very effective for me. And in fact, it worked really well for me when I was writing how to do things with stories, is that the mm -hmm. chapters say what I want to talk about but then in the prose, you know, as I'm writing, I let myself go where the thoughts lead me and, you know, permit myself <laughs> some, uh, some enthusiasm and some fun and some stuff that doesn't relate to the, the, the core main topic, but it provides more mm -hmm. inroads and more connections and, and I hope more enjoyment. It certainly, you know, <laughs> that's what made writing the book feel enjoyable for me is uh is the play of it and the, the interesting questions it raises and the way that i can take myself to these places of oh i'm here to teach you but also 
uh, we've just arrived at a place where there's where I have no advice for you. And isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. And I love that you, um, you toward the end brought an example from the writing of the book that we're talking about. That's about writing. That's <laughs> perfect. Um, and yeah, I can only hope that uh, our unstructured conversation kind of got to cover some of the main topics that's in there. And, um, yeah, looking forward to, to reading it, honestly, is there anything that we should mention, uh, before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, certainly. So, uh, the audio book is going to be published across the internet on February 28th, but the place to go to know where to, where to get it is my website, matthiasinspace.com and the section called how to do things with stories. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I was, I really enjoyed this conversation now. Um, it, it, again, it wasn't, it wasn't very structured, but despite that it did hit the main points. And in, in my view, the core of what, how to do things with stories is really about, and what I'm trying to do both with that book and more broadly, um, in my life. So, Again, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Matthias, my friend. It's always a pleasure. And um, yeah, let's talk again before you write another book. That's a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Thank you.